This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So today for our hot question of the day, we're tackling this issue of what the Prime Minister said and didn't say during his press conference that he held very early our time this morning at about five o'clock this morning. There had been some word yesterday that, oh, it was going to be uh, some contrition offer. There would be an apology, perhaps, because at the end, you know, what you, whatever side you come down on, on this whole SNC-Lavalin situation, it's very clear that there was a lot of miscommunication going on. There was a lot of people at the highest levels who didn't understand what the other person was going through. And if you're in a leadership position, if those are the people who work for you, then some might expect, like me, that you would say, hey, listen, my bad. I'm sorry. Like, I should have known better. I should have asked more questions. If there were communication problems, if things went wrong, that's on me. But he didn't say that. He didn't apologize. So some people may not feel that's necessary. That's why we're asking for our hot question of the day today. Do you think the prime minister needs to apologize for this? I actually, I do. I feel like political apologies are vastly underutilized, but incredibly effective. And I'm always astounded at the number of politicians who don't do it, who don't simply say, listen, I'm sorry, I messed up and something went wrong here and I got to find out what went wrong and we've got to make it better. Simple, powerful, effective, and yet they don't do it. So we're asking you, do you think the Prime Minister needs to apologize? You can weigh in on our buzz line here, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And if you're on Twitter, if you're on that social media, then by all means, cast your vote. You can find it at simisarah980. You can also find it at cknw. It's a pretty simple question today. Does the Prime Minister need to apologize? Yes, you think it's overdue. No, it is unnecessary. Cast your vote on that. I'm going to be really interested to hear what people have to say on this topic. Even if it was a miscommunication, if, if that's what you believe, I don't, but even if you think that was a miscommunication, shouldn't he apologize for that, right? These are his people. He put them in place, his leadership. Does this require an apology or not? What do you think? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. So why don't more politicians apologize? I've always wondered about this, even more so this morning, when I woke up to check in on what Prime Minister Trudeau had to say about this SNC-Lavalin situation and the breakdown of the relationship with Jody Wilson-Raybould. I thought for sure there would be an apology. But no, no apology. I don't get it saying, I'm sorry, I take responsibility for this, or I'm going to learn from this, I made a mistake, or something along those lines, would do him a lot of good right now. And yet, despite it being in his own best interest, no backing down and no apology. So this morning, the Prime Minister had that press conference to address this scandal, and he says that he should have been aware of an erosion of trust between his office and the former Justice Minister and AG, Jody Wilson-Raybould. But he stressed that he continues to believe there was no inappropriate pressure applied in this case. He was given the opportunity this morning to apologize, actually. Global News reporter Amanda Connolly actually asked him directly if he was prepared to offer an apology in this case, and here's his reply. Hi, Amanda Connolly with Global. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you for taking our questions today. Just to clarify, are you apologizing for anything today? Um, I will be making an Inuit apology this afternoon, but in regards to, uh, and in regards to standing, in regards to standing up for jobs and defending the integrity of our our rule of law, um, I continue to say that there was no inappropriate pressure. I'm obviously reflecting on lessons learned through this, and I think Canadians expect that of us, that any time we go through periods of internal disagreement and indeed uh, challenges to internal trust as we have, there are things that we have to reflect on and understand and do better next time. Yeah, that's advice for himself essentially at this point, right? Because the rest of us are going, you just extended this story today by not saying, I'm sorry, I should be learning this, I'll do better. So why is it that this always happens? Why don't politicians just come out with those simple words? That's what we're going to ask our next guest. Ken Coach is a crisis communications consultant with Media Coach and a former TV journalist with both the CBC and CTV national news programs. Ken, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you were shaking your head too like I was when you heard the Prime Minister's clip there. Why? Well, 
there's a fundamental thing about any kind of issues management or crisis communication. There are three things that people want to hear right away. I'm sorry, I have fixed it, it's never going to happen again. To the, so to the extent that we can say those things, the crisis will dissipate, and it can dissipate very, very quickly. The problem is people don't like to admit that they were wrong and don't like to say that they're sorry. The lawyers get involved and they say there'll be consequences, there'll be things that we may have to uh, deal with by saying that. But really, an apology is, is one of the, the nicest things that people will hear. It, people want to forgive you. They want to let yeah. you move on. And if we don't apologize, you, you don't look sincere anymore. You look like you're trying to hide something. So true. I was thinking back this morning to the 2014 uh, municipal election where you had Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson at that time running for another term. And there's a lot of anger towards him at that time. People doubting whether he was going to get reelected. But then he went on this apology tour and he was saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way things have happened. And he said it over and over and over again. And a lot of people credit that to the fact that he got reelected. Yeah, and it's not just saying you're sorry. I, I was yesterday. I was working with a client, and it's not a case of them having to say they're sorry, but having to take responsibility for what yes. happened. Yes. And so, in in some way, you have to show that you're taking responsibility. You understand that something went wrong or something needed to be fixed, and you're going to be fixing it as soon as you can. I don't know why people are reluctant to do that. I don't know either. Why are politicians in particular reluctant to do that, do you think, Ken? Well, I've it's been... It's like a, another story, right? That's <laughs> it is another story. And I've been in a few political backrooms from time to time. And one of the things that I've noticed that happens when, when there is something that is um, not what we plan for or not what they expected to have happen... There's a whole bunch of people fill up the room and a whole bunch of people have ideas about what we need to do and how we need to try to contain this and how we need to worry about our base or worry about how it's going to play in some particular riding. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of factors that come into play and they forget the basic of it. And the basic is in any crisis situation, whether it's political or not political, what people remember, they tend to forget the original crisis. They remember how you handled it. Thank you. That's exactly what's going on in this case, don't you think? I think exactly, yes. And, and, and then they, so what happened was, I think they, in, in, and I'm guessing here now, but I guess that in some back room, they, they came up with a response. And we'll try that response. And it didn't work, so they changed the response. And, they, and so what we have is people out there, and you're seeing it in the op-ed columnists, and you're seeing it in, the, in public. I was talking in my lo local bar the other day, last night, and somebody said, you know what? I just don't believe him because the story keeps changing. Yeah. So they could have... the story. So dumb and so basic. Like, I shake my head every day at this yeah. thing. And the story that they eventually fessed up to could have worked for them at the beginning. If they had done it at the beginning. Yeah. They could have said at the very beginning, um, yes, we're concerned about jobs, and, and yes, we made that clear to the AG, um, but it wasn't inappropriate. But by, by getting there through this torturous process, it's, they don't have the same credibility. No, they don't. I keep thinking of how effective it would be if at some point in this last month the Prime Minister had said, listen... Something went wrong here. I'm sorry, but we're going to find out what it was, and we've got to fix this. And there's been some kind of misunderstanding, and I, I, I'm sorry. This, like, just that simple thing would have gone a long way to fixing this. I think there was panic in that, in that political ah. back room. And I, I, I see it with some of the clients that I have. And, and something that maybe is not that big a deal, it feels life-threatening or career-threatening, and it feels like this could be the end if we don't handle it right. and deal with it and get it. Get it off the table right away. Is this petty politics, do you think? Is this just a, I'm not going to apologize? I think it might be inexperience. Ah. When, you know, the Prime Minister has had it pretty good till now. He's, so he's, true. He's been adored. He's, he's had his picture taken. He's, he's, certainly there was a, a long honeymoon when he was elected, it seemed, and, and, and everybody was liking the way he looked when he met uh, Donald Trump, and, and we were kind of getting happy with having a different kind of politician. Right, but, you know, my grandmother always said, what goes up comes down. Well, that's true. And also, 
Now we start to wonder, do we have a different kind of politician? Because he brought in two incredibly smart, intelligent, capable women to, to, into his cabinet, and they both left on principle now. Yeah, and he didn't listen to them. That's right. So if you were advising them in this situation, I'm going to allow you, Ken, to offer some free advice now to the prime minister and his circle about how to get out of this thing. Yeah, I all <laughs> <laughs> Is it too late for your advice, Ken? You know, Is that I often get called too late. Yeah. Um I'll bet. But you know what he could do and he won't do this. I would do a, a he has to do another cabinet shuffle. I would put Jody back in as AG. And say Oh. And to yeah. say this this is where it should have been and that will probably uh, pull Philpot back into the cabinet and say we're going to do things better going forward. That would surprise the hell out of everybody, and it would be seen. Remember what I said? There's it would three, neutralize everything. Uh, remember, I said there's three things. Yeah. I'm sorry, I fixed it, and it's never going to happen again. It would it would address those last two things. Right, but that's a very bold move. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to happen. No, and because that's what politicians don't do. They don't do bold moves. They do the way business has been done for, you know, forever. and, And they fall back on that stuff because they think it's safer. But this is something that repeatedly politicians, a mistake that they all make, regardless of party and background, they all do this. Why? Is it human nature? It's partly human nature, and it's partly, as I said, I've worked with a lot of politicians, and I've, before they get elected, they're wonderful, principled people. <laughs> <laughs> then what happens, well, Ken? Then, then what happens, there's all this stuff that they want to do, and after they've been in power, or the, they, they believe that they have to stay in power to do everything that they want to accomplish. And so then the little compromises come up and and we have to do this. And yes, it's not the best thing to do, but we're looking at the greater good. Right. Okay. So do you see then continued trouble ahead here? Like from what you've seen, the way they've addressed it so far, is it just going to be more trouble? Well, we're going to find out uh, on October October 21st, right? I think um, there's a couple of things at play still. Trudeau um, alienated some of his allies with things like the trans- buying Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people that have probably still been saying, yeah, but he's not Harper. And he's not the, the conservatives. So what I would suspect could happen is that some of the more left-leaning Canadians may sit on their hands in the coming election. And that's what could cause him some trouble. Unless he does some kind of grand gesture between now and then. That's the thing. I, I always I feel like we're all sitting around waiting for that grand gesture, but it increasingly sounds to me and seems to me like they're not going to make one. I don't think they know what to do. I don't, th- I don't think they know what that grand gesture would be. They're not going to do what I just suggested. That w- I think that would get them out of it. I think it would too. But they don't know what the grand gesture should be. And, and what grand gesture can they use that will uh, satisfy not only the, the people that they're alienated, but the other parts of the party? And Is this bad advice, do you think, as well? Like when you've got somebody who's in a leadership position like that, obviously a lot of what they say and do is, is informed by the people around them and the advice that they give. So if you were to br- br- brought in there in that situation, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, like, listen, you've got to stop listening to these people who are around you. They are giving you bad advice. Yes. So if I were brought in early on this sort of situation, I would have done something that uh, another PR person in in Vancouver, Jim Hogan, taught me many years ago, and that is eat big and eat early. So had what you mean by that is if there's a situation, come out as early as you can yeah. with the apology, with the fix it, with the whole sort of thing. We made a mistake, and we're we're going to fix it now. They could have done that before Jody Wilson-Raybould testified in the committee. Yeah. And then that whole testimony would have had a whole different uh, uh, aspect to it. You're right. And yet this doesn't seem to happen. So, Ken, are you literally writing a manual while this is all going on and being <laughs> like, so in the future, what you tell people not to do? I haven't written a manual. You know, there's a lot of uh, books about uh, crisis uh, yeah. training and uh, issues management and that sort of thing. In my experience, every crisis is different, but they're all the same. 
which means that you, you, most of what you have to do is get into the head of the person who's feeling the crisis. Sometimes I feel I'm also being a counselor as well as I'm trying to you get are. them out of the, the problem, right? Yeah. And so part of it is, is to uh, – my training as a journalist for 20 years comes in incredibly handy because, as you know, you come into work in the morning and – something lands on your desk that you've never heard of, and you have to be an expert by the time the mic goes yep. up, right? Yep. So this is the same thing in crisis. So part of what I have to do is understand their business uh, quickly and then understand how they're feeling about the business. There are certain things that we can do, like you know, uh, apologize, say you're going to fix it and fix it. But often there are other things that, that are unique to whatever that crisis is. So it's hard to have a, a step-by-step manual. You kind of have to feel it out. Right, but this one certainly seems to go by the playbook. Uh, Ken, thank you for your time on this. You're welcome. My pleasure. Appreciate that. That's Ken Coach, crisis communications consultant with Media Coach and a former TV journalist with the CBC and CTV National News Programs. All right, you resident of the Tri-Cities out there, you need to be on alert. No, not because of the weather, but because of a massive increase in the number of cougar sightings. To talk more about this now, we are joined by our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Have you ever seen a uh, big cat, a cougar before? No, I, this is one of my uh, paranoias. Like, I'm, this would freak me out. Mm-hmm. I read a Reader's, Reader's Digest story a long time ago about a cougar that uh, attacked a family horseback riding. I know. And every single time I'm out walking in the woods somewhere where you think a cougar might be, I'm always so See? looking around, so vigilant. That You're it paranoid like me. Yeah, totally. This scares me. Like the story that we ran recently about the guy down in Colorado who killed the cougar. Stories like that. The cougar to death. Yeah. So, yes, as you've said, there has been an increased amount of sightings of cougars in the Tri-City areas. And I spoke with uh, Sergeant Todd Hunter. He is a conservation officer for the Fraser North Zone. And he told me all about what they have been hearing. From the stats that we've seen so far in uh, February, we have uh, 39 uh, reports of cougars in the Tri-Cities area. It is quite a bit more. We had six complaints last year at this time. So definite increase. Uh, Reasons why? There's a number of factors uh, that could lead to that. You know, there could be uh, an increase of sightings due to the cougars being in that specific areas because of environmental factors, snowpack, uh, predator-prey relationships. So there's not one real reason, but uh, we, we do have an increase. Uh, no kidding, an increase. 39 sightings? Yes, 39 compared to six at this time last year. So that's a huge increase. And uh, Sergeant Hunter told me that the, the snowpack that's in the higher elevations is pushing deer and other small animals down to more urban areas and therefore what follows but cougars. So that's why we're seeing more of them. And Sergeant Hunter says that they have some tips for homeowners about what they can do to discourage cougars from coming around because that plays a big role as well. Definitely don't feed deer uh, when they come in and around your home. It, it uh, It's not a good idea. As those deer are being habituated to that area, uh, then uh, what becomes, uh, they, they are prey for cougars, the primary source of prey. So uh, if you're feeding them in and around your home, not a good idea. You're bringing uh, predators close by. And then also manage your property to the lowest form of wildlife, vermin. This is it's very essential that we do it at all times of the year. If we have smaller animals coming around to get food on your property, there's likely larger animals, which in turn brings in larger predators for those animals. If you've got raccoons coming around your property, you may have higher chances of predators like cougars or coyotes coming around. Why is it, Claire, that cougars freak us out so much? I think because they are solitary animals, they are uh, they sneak up on you. Yes. Uh, you usually don't see them until it's too late. And they attack all the time. And they attack. We do hear about attacks. Uh, Sergeant Hunter said it's not uh, a common occurrence, but when we hear about it, it freaks everyone out because they are very deadly. It's, They're vicious. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I think that's why. And I also think it's just the element of... You know, you're surprised when you see one because you don't hear or really see a cougar coming. 
That is so true. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you were talking about being out and about. Lots of people are. The weather's going to start, well, we hope, eventually start <laughs> to warm up. People go out. What do you need to know if you're going to be out? Yeah, so Sergeant Hunter said whether you're out or about or if you are simply out in your yard and you see a cougar, I said, what should you do? Here's what he told me. Depending on where you are, if you see a cougar um, and it, you know, in its natural environment, like uh, you're hiking on a trail, don't persist down the trail. Um, let, let the animal leave on its own. View at a distance. Always make yourself larger. Um, take a, a distinctive commanding presence. Um, vocalize to the cougar. Go away, cougar. Um, if it's not going away and it's totally fixated on you, the the thing not to do is turn your back and run. That's their natural instinct is to chase fleeing deer. So uh, not a good idea. You want to back away slowly, vocalize, uh, vocalize to the animal. And uh, generally, it's a very rare encounter, but uh, it does happen. Uh, in and around homes and in communities, if you see a cougar, we're not discouraging people to report sightings. It's actually good information to report what's going on. It's essential in order to get that valuable information on how to make the best decisions on managing that animal. Oof, it's kind of scary though. It's scary. So if you do see a cougar, they do encourage you to call your uh, the BC Conf- Conservation Office and just tell them about where you saw it so they can track the, sort of the movements of the animal. Um, but what I this you know this this conversation and this this news sort of jogged my memory back to an interview that we did in the summer with Dan Mikolay of oh, Wild yeah. Safe BC. Yeah. And it was such a fascinating interview, Simi. You guys talked about bears, cougars, coyotes, you know, everything that we could encounter in BC. And one of the most fascinating things he said is that what you should do if you run into a cougar and you're with a small child, it was very sort of counterintuitive. And here's what he had to say. And then if you're with a child, um, put your child in front of you. Um, the reason for that is that you want to be able to see your child. So as a parent, I would want to put my, my child behind me because um, you, don't, you can't see the child. So if, if your child panics and starts running, you will turn your head. Now you're a danger and your child is now focused. By putting your child in front of you, you both can be big, have your arms up, and then you can control your child and it'll make your child less, um, less nervous. That does seem totally and completely counterintuitive because, mm-hmm. of course, you'd want to put yourself between your child and the threat. The threat. Yeah, totally. But exactly. he's saying don't do that. Well, it makes sense also in the the thought about how you the cougar might think you're hiding something. Like there's something behind you that they might want to look into. They're just such interesting animals. They're very eh? cunning. Yeah, they are very sly. smart, very yes. sly. And so the takeaway is is that if you live in the Tri Cities, please be aware of the fact that there is an increased uh, amount of or increased sightings of cougars, which means for increased amount of cougars around. So um, please be aware of that. If you're walking your dog, keep your dog on leash. And like Sergeant Hunter said, make sure to just Make your home and the area around your home less attractive for uh, whether it be rodents or any anything rodents. else because it could lead to bigger animals coming around. Weren't you saying that this morning, that if your yard is prone to raccoons, then it's prone to coyotes, then it's prone, prone to, to cougars. cougars? Totally. That's really? what yeah, Sergeant Hunter had told me this morning, that if you have raccoons coming into your yard frequently, that there is probably some source of food that they're interested in and it could lead to a bigger animal coming in like a cougar. Oh, okay, that is not good news. There's raccoons in my yard. Yeah, I know. And that probably means, I mean, there's raccoons in uh, my mom's yard where she lives. And uh, we see coyotes sometimes in that area as well. And I'm sure you've seen coyotes where you live. And of course, we don't get cougars down in Metro, like right in, in Vancouver. The city of Vancouver, in the city. Yeah. But in the Tri-Cities and other areas, yeah, they're around. So just be careful okay. and be alert when you're out. You know, if you're a jogger that likes to run in the trails... Don't run with your headphones in because as we heard in Colorado, the reason why he the only reason why he was able to hear the branch snap when the cougar was coming is because he didn't have his headphones in. All good advice. Thank you for that, Claire. Thank you, Simi. That is Claire Allen, our show contributor with Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
the story about the Cougars and the Tri-Cities area. You want to know how many? In 2018, during the same time period, they have six reports of Cougar sightings. In the same time period this year, 39 We are failing mentally ill patients who are involuntarily admitted to psychiatric facilities in this province. They're being denied their legal rights. That is according to a new report from the BC Ombudsperson, which came out today. We wanted to get more details on this, so we're joined now by the BC Ombudsperson, Jay Chalk. Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon, Simi. What did you take a look at? So we uh, had received over the years uh, individual complaints from uh, people who had been admitted expressing concerns about whether or not uh, their legal rights have been protected upon admission. And so we decided to take a systemic look at that. So we reviewed all of the involuntary admissions across British Columbia for a one-month period, some 1,500 uh, admissions, uh, and looked at uh, uh, some 70 psychiatric hospitals uh, across the province. And uh, What we were trying to determine is whether or not the requirements in the Mental Health Act that relate to uh, someone's admission, uh, notice to them uh, of their legal rights, um, how to get legal advice, um, and uh, uh, to nominate a a relative who will be notified that they've been admitted. Um, uh, We looked at all of those requirements, uh, consent to treatment, and determined that across the board uh, throughout the province, uh, those legal rights are being protected some 28% of the time uh, uh, for 28% of the admissions, which is obviously a big concern. Yeah, that is a big concern. So is it just non-compliance? So it, it, what we were looking for was evidence that the legal forms that or how those rights are manifested or articulated are a set of legal forms. And so we were looking for those forms and they just weren't there. Uh, and so, uh, so it's certainly missing. We also uh, saw a number of forms where um, they were there, but quite deficient. Um, an example of that deficiency is one of the forms relates to uh, obtaining consent to treatment. So once you're admitted, the purpose of being admitted to a, a psychiatric facility as an involuntary patient is for treatment. Uh, and uh, either you as the patient or uh, the the facility director can consent to treatment on your behalf, uh, um, but someone has to. And uh, the uh, way that's determined is through a, a form prescribed under the Mental Health Act. And uh, uh, we determined that that was not uh, there uh, frequently. But even when it was there, uh, there were problems. And sometimes some hospitals were literally using a rubber stamp that would apply to any patient who uh, uh, who was admitted and just pr- uh, basically described any kind of uh, treatment one could get. Obviously, not possible to get informed, legal informed consent when you're just describing any possible thing that could happen to you. Right. This seems so it's hard to believe, right? Because you're like, how can people not have the forms in place? Because the rest of us, we, you know, we need to get a form. We can't do anything without getting it stamped. And here people are getting treatment without the proper forms being in place. And informed consent is a well-developed concept in law. It's nothing yeah. new. Um, um, think of our, all of us as patients uh, with respect to our physical health care. Uh, we value our bodily integrity and expect to be able to be informed by our physician about the risks and benefits of being treated or, or deciding not to be treated or what the options are. Uh, and the same goes uh, uh, in the context of mental health treatment. Is there any fallout from this, though? Is there any repercussions for these facilities not going by the rules? Well, we were quite concerned, and uh, so we uh, advised uh, 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 the health authorities uh, of our uh, tentative findings last year, and a number of them were, um, frankly, surprised and disappointed by their own poor performance, I would say. Uh, And so what that really reflects is a lack of awareness even uh, within their own administration about uh, how poorly they were doing. So uh, some of them have already um, um, taken steps to improve. We highlight um, uh, one of those hospitals uh, in our report uh, that have already started to do something, but we make a, a series of 24 recommendations that are really designed to address uh, concerns about uh, auditing, um, annual targets, um, improved records management, increased public reporting, and, uh, and establishing provincial standards uh, and, and training. So all of those are important. Perhaps the most important recommendation we make, though, is to that British Columbia join most other provinces in Canada and have a, a system of independent rights advice for involuntary uh, uh, psychiatric patients. So when someone is admitted to a psychiatric hospital, they will have a rights advisor visit them and tell them what their rights are uh, uh, personally so that they'll, they'll be aware, they'll be made aware uh, of what those rights are. So 
Um, we don't have that? Is, the good, sorry, I'm sorry? We don't have something like that? Because that seems like a very good idea. It does seem like a good idea. Um, uh, it, uh, what we have currently is an obligation on the, on the um, hospital to advise the individual of those things, but no independent rights advice. And in fact, what we found was that uh, at least half the time, um, uh, that rights advice wasn't happening. Uh, and, uh, and so having an independent rights advisor and someone who can frankly ask questions independent from the hospital, uh, if someone, say, for example, doesn't agree with their detention and wants to know what they can do about it, um, uh, having an independent, uh, you know, a visit from an independent rights advisor is a good idea. So the good news is that uh, uh, that suggestion and all our others have been accepted by the health authorities and by the provincial government. Uh, and for implementation over the next couple of years. Does this report also illustrate, do you think, Mr. Chalk, that this is one of the reasons why we think we're not serving those who are mentally ill uh, good enough in this province? Well, I think there's a range of issues with respect to the to uh, uh, the treatment of the mentally ill. and, and uh, uh, But one thing I firmly believe is that it's a false premise to talk about treatment or rights. You can certainly improve the system of treatment in the province while still respecting uh, individual rights. And uh, in my view, you need to do both. Uh, and I think that that's what legislators have decided when they pass a mental health act. It has a number of requirements on hospitals to do things. Uh, it's their expectation that people will only be detained uh, if certain uh, steps are taken. And so when, when we see that those steps aren't being taken, uh, it's obviously uh, not the expectation of the people who pass the legislation in the province that determines how individual or sorry, involuntary uh, uh, detention can occur under the Mental Health Act. So, yes, uh, treatment's important, um, but uh, so are rights, and we can do both. Now, geographically, were there certain areas that had worse compliance rates than others? There was a, a variation among among health authorities, and we certainly reported. Uh, the report goes into some detail, and if people are interested, the report's at our website, bcombudsperson.ca. Uh, uh, and uh, for some of the uh, 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 forms, we actually break it out by hospital. Um, and, uh, and what we noticed uh, if, uh, in that context was that some hospitals uh, uh, did quite well with respect to a particular kind of form and others quite poorly. So obviously it's possible to do it because some are doing it already. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but all the others had a, a quite uh, poor level of performance. So I think that variation is, uh, you know, points that, points that there's a way forward if, uh, if uh, management of the hospitals and the government take this seriously. Yeah, how do we fix this then? Well, I think our recommendations are designed to do that. So um, some of them are focused on auditing, so requiring health authorities to conduct regular audits uh, to ensure that they're actually following the law. Uh, establishing performance targets that are 100% of compliance and, and assessing whether or not uh, uh, the, uh, each facility is, is doing so. Um, um, increased public reporting, so um, the Ministry of uh, Mental Health and Addictions will be publishing, uh, uh, increasing their public reporting. Um, establishing provincial standards and also training. I think training is uh, one of those things that uh, yeah. too often gets forgotten, but for people who are operating, and understandably they're, they're delivering health care, uh, and so uh, the understanding the import of protecting legal rights is, uh, you know, is in some contexts uh, an adjunct to what they do, but, but it, obviously to the extent that people are in a locked facility and can't leave and, and lose their right to refuse treatment in certain contexts, it's, it's critically important, so mandatory training. And then rights advice, uh, not that scheme of independent rights advice I spoke of. Oh, so fascinating. All right, thank you so much for your time. Great, thanks, Amy. That is Jay Chalk, who is the BC Ombudsperson. You know, many of us remember the case of Lyle and Marie McCann. They were the two retirees who went missing while they were on a road trip between Alberta and BC. And this was back in 2010. I know it seems like a long time ago. Well, it took a long time to get some resolution to their case as well. It wasn't until 2017 that Travis Vader was convicted of manslaughter in connection with their presumed deaths and received a life sentence. We say presumed deaths because their bodies have never been located. Travis Vader never admitted to killing the McCanns. Have a listen to this Global News report on the case from back in 2016. Lyle and Marie McCann left for a vacation in July 2010 and were never seen again. Despite a mostly circumstantial case, there was no doubt in Justice Denny Thomas's mind. I conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Vader in one manner or another caused the death of Lyle and Marie McCann. 
It's the first verdict in a criminal trial in Alberta, broadcast and streamed live. The justice said Vader was a meth addict who happened upon the McCanns. A robbery turned violent and they were both murdered. Vader was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, but the justice says there was no evidence that it was pre-planned. That's why he convicted him of second-degree murder. Linking the facts I have found, there is no question that Mr. Vader committed homicide. The McCanns are dead. They were the subjects of violence that caused bloodshed. I am surprised by it, yes. Vader's DNA was found in the McCann's SUV. He used the couple's cell phone, but his lawyer maintains his client's innocence. There will be an appeal based upon what we think are errors uh, in the judgment. All the while, the most important evidence is still missing. The McCann's remains have never been found, something that still pains their children after so many years. I hope that someday, somehow, you will be found. Unfortunately, that still hasn't happened. So that was a global news report from back in 2016. And it has been very difficult, understandably, for the family and the friends of the McCanns. They still have no idea where their loved ones are. So now a local MP believes that he has the fix for difficult situations like this. Dane Lloyd is the MP for Sturgeon River Parkland in Alberta. On March 1st, he introduced a private member's bill in the House of Commons that would create consequences for convicted killers who refuse to provide information regarding the location of the body or remains of their victims. And he joined us earlier to tell us about this bill. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this topic today. First of all, tell us about this bill that you have tabled. Well, uh, my bill, uh, C-437, an act to amend the Criminal Code, the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, and the Prisons and Reformatories Act, uh, kind of a long name. Uh, we call it McCann's Law, named after Lyle and Marie McCann of St. Albert, Alberta, uh, who were tragically murder- murdered in 2010, and their bodies uh, have yet to be recovered. Um, this legislation uh, follows through on a campaign promise I made uh, during my nomination and election campaign in October 2017, uh, where I pledged to introduce legislation uh, regarding parole in the case where an offender refused to cooperate and provide authorities uh, with the location of their victim's remains. Okay, now how would that work, Mr. Lloyd? So uh, this bill takes a number of approaches. Uh, so first off, uh, during the sentencing uh, period, so when somebody has been found uh, guilty uh, of, uh, of murder and has not cooperated to find the location of the remains, uh, it becomes an aggravating sentence at factoring. And we're very clear here that uh, the judge, if the judge finds that there is relevant information, but that relevant information is being withheld, then the judge has the discretion to, to make this an aggravating factor and also to uh, place an order that, uh, that they uh, be considered uh, ineligible for parole for a period of... Uh, Right now, you're eligible for parole at one-third of your sentence served. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you'll get parole. Uh, but now, under this legislation, it would be one-half of your sentence served or 10 years, which uh, adds uh, years onto uh, the parole ineligibility. Okay, and is this? And I understand that you, you say that you've done the work on this and that it, you've worked around any kind of constitutionality issues. I mean, I believe we have. I mean, we. I, I had a crown prosecutor, a retired crown prosecutor, assist me with the drafting of this legislation. It went through the uh, parliamentary legal drafters. Um, of course, the McCann family has been involved at all steps of the way to ensure that uh, that they felt this legislation uh, respected their wishes and also would be effective. And I believe because we pre- preserved the discretion for the parole board and for uh, judges to decide uh, the appropriate use of this tool, we're giving them the tools to get justice for families. And I believe that they should use these tools. I'm, I'm curious, though, Mr. Lloyd, like, how would this work? Like, what about the cases of the wrongfully convicted? I mean, Canada, we know of at least a couple of dozen people who have been convicted and put in jail but later on, we find out they're innocent. People like David Milgard, Stephen Truscott, Guy Paul Moran. What if someone didn't do it? And could this bill keep them in prison for life anyway, because they didn't admit to something that they didn't do? Absolutely. I mean, uh, like something we never want to do in the justice system is have somebody uh, who's wrongfully convicted. And basically, I believe it's up to the courts. And in this case, it would be an appeal court. If we hear new evidence, 
that, you know, somebody may not be guilty, uh, then it's absolutely up to our appeals court. And, and I believe in our justice system, uh, although there have been mistakes in the past, like we need yeah. a justice system to do its job. This legislation, though, it's for offenders who are guilty. Uh, it doesn't make a judgment on whether or not the courts got uh, the evidence right or wrong. It just says that if, if the courts believe this person's guilty and convicts this person, then this law would be used. Right. But then these people were also convicted in a court and found guilty. So they, they could have been subject to this. Exactly. And I mean, uh, it's not up to the parole board to basically second guess the, the judge and say, well, this person might have actually been innocent. That's not a provision in the parole board hearings. The parole board's job is to decide, has this person been rehabilitated? Does this person have a low risk to offend? And we're adding another case that says, has this person cooperated to find uh, the location of their victim's remains? And it's really up to our appeals court and our judicial system to uh, to fix any mistakes if somebody is uh, improperly convicted, uh, but this legislation doesn't touch on that. Right, but the system isn't perfect, is it? No, absolutely not. Uh, but we're not going to basically say we can't convict anyone of anything because there's a there's a minor chance that that they could be innocent. I mean, then we couldn't have a working justice system. All right. So we also know that this is is this likely to even get passed? Right? You've presented it, you've tabled it, but what's the likelihood it's going to move forward? Well, basically, um, when uh, when you get elected, especially in a by-election, there's actually a lottery uh, when when first elected on uh, when you get selected to present your private member's bill. And this is a private member's bill that I've brought in. Because I was elected in a by-election in October 2017, I was basically put near to the bottom of the lottery. And so my private member's bill uh, doesn't have enough time to be heard. But what I wanted to do was introduce this legislation. I've been working over a year to ensure that we could have the best, most constitutional and, and most effective legislation that we can get. I've introduced it so that I can enter the public debate now. We have a petition that just went out. It has just over 400 signatures so far. And basically what I want to do is, is make this a topic uh, in the next election. You know, what are we doing for victims and their families? And after the election, should I be uh, honored enough to be reelected by my constituents, I'll, be, I'll have a bill that's ready to go that can be introduced. I won't be at the bottom of the lottery like I am now and hopefully have a chance to get this passed fairly quickly in the new parliament. Do we know how many cases there are like this? I know the, the McCann case is awful for the family having to wait and wonder what happened, but how many cases are there like this out there? Well, I mean, there's several cases, uh, uh, like, uh, and, and luckily, I think it's quite fortunate that we don't have a great deal of these cases in this country. Uh, I think we're all thankful for that. But uh, we do have several cases. Uh, look at the uh, Dellen Millard case, for example. I mean, uh, they, they allegedly, while well, they were convicted of destroying the bodies of their victims using uh, an incinerator, and, uh, but there are remains, and they are somewhere, and they have not cooperated on those remains. Um, and, and basically, uh, there's other cases. Anecdotally, a colleague of mine, David Sweet uh, from Hamilton, uh, introduced legislation to amend the parole system in the past uh, due to a case. I don't know the exact name, but uh, a wife and daughter were killed. Their bodies were found in the Welland Canal, and the son's body has yet to be found. And the extended family, uh, the, the husband or the uh, husband was convicted, and the extended family wants to know uh, where the body of the young son is, and and the uh, the offender has not cooperated in that case. So there are. This isn't just an isolated case of Lyle and Marie McCann. There are other cases across the country. All right, Mr. Lloyd. Thank you very much for your time. Well, Simi, thank you. I appreciate it. That's Dane Lloyd. He's the MP for Sturgeon River Parkland in Alberta. At the very least, an apology for. Uh, I'm so sorry that I had these two high-profile cabinet ministers that didn't feel like they could talk to me. I Obviously, I need to change what I'm doing. Just some kind of mea culpa that he understands the gravity of the situation that he finds himself in, and yet it's not there. So we're going to talk more about this. Uh, but first, let's just recap sort of what happened today. During that morning news conference, he didn't apologize for what has unfolded so far in this SNC-Lavalin case. He did stress that he continues to believe he continues to believe that there was no inappropriate pressure applied to Jody Wilson-Raybould to stop a criminal prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. Meanwhile, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer says the Prime Minister still isn't explaining why his staff kept pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould after she had said that a final decision was made. 
Meanwhile, at that press conference this morning, our global news reporter, Amanda Connolly, straight up asked Prime Minister Trudeau directly if he was prepared to offer an apology. And here was his reply. Hi, Amanda Connolly with Global. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you for taking our questions today. Just to clarify, are you apologizing for anything today? Um, I will be making an Inuit apology this afternoon, but in regards to uh, and in regards to standing, in regards to standing up for jobs and defending the integrity of our, our rule of law, um, I continue to say that there was no inappropriate pressure. I'm obviously reflecting on lessons learned through this, and I think Canadians expect that of us, that any time we go through periods of internal disagreement and indeed uh, challenges to internal trust as we have, there are things that we have to reflect on and understand and do better next time. Yeah, that still didn't cut it for a lot of people out there. Why is it so hard for some politicians to say, I'm sorry? Well, let's talk more about this. We're joined now by Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hi, Timmy. What did you think of that this morning? I wasn't. Uh, I was not expecting an apology after listening to Jerry Butts yesterday. They clearly, the premier's office, the prime minister's office, is clearly of the view that they think they they themselves did nothing wrong, and therefore, if you walk back from that, they don't think there's anything to apologize for. And so, after hearing Butts, I wasn't expecting an apology. I was expecting a little more contriteness yes. from the prime minister. What you know, short of an absolute, I am sorry. I think a little more contrition uh, here would have, I think, played better with people. I don't think, I still think he's stubbornly clinging to the notion that there's nothing to see here, folks, move on. And I think his communications from day one on this has been tone deaf. That doesn't quite grasp that, that Wilson-Raybo made some pretty alarming allegations. And even though you den- if you deny them, the fact is he's lost two high-profile women from his cabinet. And I think he can't pretend to, be, to think that there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to see. We did absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, but uh, clearly he's stubbornly yeah. sticking to a script that's been there unchanged from day one. Yeah, you, tone deaf is a good way to put it. I mean, regardless of uh, this happened on his watch, even if he, he mm-hmm. personally believes nothing happened, it still happened on his watch and there is a problem. So shouldn't he, as you said, show some contrition for that? I think he it would serve him well to show more contrition than he currently has. I have talked to some people in that government um, who are continue to have a problem, not so much with Jody Wilson-Raybo, but with Jane Philpott, whose letter, if you look at that, uh, is actually much more condemning of the Trudeau cabinet than Wilson-Raybo's comments are. Wilson-Raybo was basically... Uh, criticizing some staff people uh, and and indirectly the, the prime minister himself, but Philpott's letter throws the entire cabinet under an unethical bus, and that's what I, one of the things I think they've been grappling with. I think Philpott's resignation turned this into a, a sort of a harder edged, uh, firm position from them in terms of being stubbornly refusing to acknowledge that anything uh, to apologize to Jane Philpott for. And I think there's a, I've picked up the fact that there's, they seem to be distinguishing between Wilson-Raybould and Philpott. Yeah. I think they are probably genuinely sorry. They should say they're sorry about Wilson-Raybould. Philpott, though, I think I detect uh, her resignation and the tone of that letter caused an angry reaction from the PMO at a time perhaps when they were maybe heading towards a sort of being more contrite toward Wilson-Raybould. Philpott's actions, though, I think has sort of hardened the position of the PMO. Interesting. You've been doing this a long time. Like, how? why is it, do you think, so difficult for a politician oh, yeah. to say, I'm sorry? Yeah, no, to me, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, there's so many eagles involved here. Uh, and it's also, people make, I think, turn these questions into more complicated matters than they have to be. That somehow saying your story is a sign of weakness, and really it's not. I think there's numerous instances over history where apologies or even tears sometimes work to a politician's favor. I remember Gordon Campbell in the impaired driving situation in Hawaii. I mean, he apologized, and he actually teared up, and his approval rating went up in the polls. I mean, people do... I don't think look at a politician worse if they apologize for their actions. But I go back to what I said at the beginning. They clearly think they did nothing wrong. And therefore, if you take that position, they think there's nothing to apologize for. And I think that's, uh, again, I wouldn't be surprised if, if take Jane, Jane Philpott out of the equation. Maybe there would have been an apology to Wilson-Raybould, but I think Philpott's 
letter uh, saying basically by implication that the entire cabinet is unethical, I think that makes it so hard for Trudeau to say, I'm sorry, because he doesn't want to apologize to Jane Philpott. Right. You said that you've talked to some people in the government mm-hmm. there. Like, how are they feeling? Is it a fear? Are they beleaguered? Are they like battening down the hatches? What's going on? I think there's a frustration. I think there's probably different camps that are that have been created there, D- different types of advice. I think the prime minister was getting two sets of advice, one to be very contrite. The other one was saying, no way, that Philpot uh, ha- cannot be uh, looked on with sympathy at all, and you've got to take a tough position. The key now going forward, though, it's quite one thing to you know be in the National Press Theatre and talk to reporters. The key for Trudeau going forward i've covered i've covered six leadership crises here uh, and there's a there's a commonality to all of them cabinet really doesn't matter at the end of the day it's your caucus and i've talked to some politicians here and they all agree in both the independent liberal caucus this year it's the key here is for the prime minister to be able to hold on to the support of his caucus he's got a big caucus already he's got a couple of mps speaking out against him or expressing support for wilson rabo and not him uh, he's got to not only keep his cabinet together, he's got to keep his caucus together. And if you start seeing signs of caucus members now speaking up and, and criticizing the prime minister or saying they're unsure about his leadership, that can become a very leaky ship very quickly, and that would imperil his prime ministership. We're not there yet, and again, we've seen no signs of that happening. Uh, but that's what I'm keeping my eye on. If caucus members start speaking up about this, that's a sign that uh, what right now has been a, a mini crisis could turn into a full-fledged crisis about his leadership. It's interesting. We're not, there, we're not there yet. It's interesting how they always try to take pains to say that, oh, we're not like the previous government. We're not like... <laughs> but in many ways, Stephen Harper had a much tighter control of what was going on with his cabinet and caucus than the prime minister does now. Oh, exactly. And I think uh, Harper was an uber-control leader. Uh, He had very little of these types of problems. I think Wilson, Raybould, and Philpott, it's been pointed out, they're sort of new to politics. Uh, They they haven't come up through the party ranks and, you know, working on campaigns and nominations and sort of the the seamy underside of politics that's always there no matter who's in government. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think the PMO miscalculated with these two, particularly Wilson Raybo, that this was going to be a type of, of behavior or judgment that they were just not used to. And Harper never had that problem. But uh, we're going to see just what type of hold yeah. Justin Trudeau and what type of loyalty he's instilled in his caucus. Uh, I think a lot of them think he got them to where they are now. But do they believe that he will get them, uh, will continue to deliver them into to government? Well, no, I think in the, in the next few weeks, whether that, that ship remains a, a tight, solid one or whether it becomes very leaky. Okay, so do you think an apology is necessary? Uh, I don't think it ever hurts to say, I'm sorry for how things have ha- been handled. In retrospect, I think I would have done things different. And I'm sorry if, if, if people were... It's all, it's all in the wording, I think. Um, but again, I just think when politicians think they've got nothing to apologize for, That's that the worst. they've done nothing wrong, it's impossible to get them to say, I'm sorry. And, you know, Gordon Campbell really couldn't argue with a drunk driving conviction. I mean, there it is. You, how do you argue with that? In this case, they're saying what they're alleging never happened. Therefore, I'm not saying I'm sorry. But I think there's a difference between being saying I'm sorry and being more contrite. And I think the prime minister might be a little more contrite in the days ahead. Uh, but we'll see. He's proving to be fairly stubborn on this spot. Oh, so awesome. Listen, Keith, thank you for your time. Anytime. Appreciate that. Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, weighing in on the uh, latest situation on this story from Ottawa, of course, involving SNC-Lavalin.